Come along with us as we explore the broad world of preservation and the work being done to preserve, interpret, and save our past in a 21st century world. From aquaculture to historic foodways to forensic modeling, we're talking weekly with experts from across the globe. This is your host, Nick Redding. Welcome to PreserveCast. Join us on this week's PreserveCast as we talk with Dr. Christopher Finan about his book, Drunks, The Story of Alcoholism and the Birth of Recovery. We'll talk to Chris about the history of alcoholism in America, the story of recovery, and how the preservation and history community can approach telling the full story of alcohol at sites and places all across this nation. All that and more on this week's PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. And today, I am particularly excited to be interviewing this author and historian, Dr. Christopher Finan, um, who, for the purposes of today, he's, he's published a number of really um, impressive works. But for today's uh, conversation, we're going to be talking about his book, Drunks, The Story of Alcoholism and the Birth of Recovery. Um which is, you know, a, a unique and interesting topic. Some was something we wanted to bring to PreserveCast. We love to um, talk about different aspects of history and preservation and the intersection of all those things. And what a critical role alcoholism and and alcohol, for that matter, has played in American history and plays out on the landscape. Um, you know, in bars and saloons and all those sorts of things um, that are a big piece of America's story. Um, but before we get there. We want to talk to Chris um, a little bit about sort of how he became the writer that he is, and um, we love to get to know folks. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? And, you know, we are always curious, particularly people who work in history and preservation, all those sorts of things, um, when they kind of got the bug, the spark, um, what was your path into doing this kind of work and this type of research? Um, well, first of all, thank you uh, for for having me. I I love talking about the subject and uh, and every opportunity I, I appreciate. Um, so I was born in Cleveland, and um, my father was in radio. Um, he was actually a disc jockey in Cleveland in the fifties. Uh, and um, but at one point we moved uh, to Denver. So most of I grew up for the most part in Denver. Um, my father loved history, and I he certainly. Um, Passed that, uh, passed that on to me, and I remember really couldn't get enough of it in high school, and um, so I majored in it at um, Antioch College uh, in Yellow Springs, Ohio, and um, and then after a short period of um, being a reporter, um, which I thought I wanted to be at that point, um, I decided to go to graduate school um, and study history just for a year or two. I ended up being falling in love with the subject, the opportunity. I had a, a very supportive wife, Patricia Willard, who's a writer too. And um we both agreed that, you know, um that I should stay and, and finish the PhD, which but the, the real the real goal was to finish a book. Um so my first book, which is a biography of Alfred E. Smith, the first Catholic to run for president in 1928, um, absorbed me for about 20 years. <laughs> and then um, took 10 years to, to um, uh, you know, to finish graduate school and then another 10 years to actually finish a trade book um, instead of just a dissertation. So 
yeah, I've been I've been buried in history all my life, and um, and um, when I subsequently, you know, um, got a job when I finally graduated, um, I started working in civil liberties, uh, and um, my first job is with was with an anti-censorship group, a small anti-censorship group that um, defended the First Amendment rights of businesses, um, publishers, booksellers, authors, um, and other um, producers and distributors of media. But all that time, I also continued to work on um, on books. And so um, I wrote a history of uh, the growth of free speech in America because I, I think people take it for granted um, assuming that, you know, we've always had free speech because um, it's in the Constitution. Um, the fact is, free speech as we understand it today is really only 50, 60 years old. You know, really, um, uh, there was a free speech revolution in the 50s and the 60s. So anyway, um, this was not a story people were familiar with. So I wrote one book on that. And then I, my most recent book, um, it's called How Free Speech Saved Democracy, which is a study of the fight for free speech back to the beginning of the, the nation and coming forward. In between all that, I did write drunks. Um, drunks was a subject, alcoholism is a subject that's very close to my heart because it. Um, I come from a long line of alcoholics, and I am one myself. Um, in recovery now for almost 40 years, but still an alcoholic. And um, and I didn't know much about the history of the subject myself. Um, I knew I knew about AA because I was in AA and there's a lot of literature, historical literature that AA has published. But I wanted to push the story back um, to the beginning of the Republic. And um, I wanted to know how attitudes had changed toward alcoholics, um, you know, beginning practically in the revolutionary period. Um, and so this book, uh, Drunks, was a, you know, was a product of that, um, you know, that study. And that that came out in 2017. So um, it's been a while since <laughs> it's been a while. I'm currently my current job, which I'm about to retire from. I'm the executive director of the National Coalition Against Censorship, um, which is a free speech group that was founded in the 70s. And um, so we've been we've had a very busy period, as I think everybody on this <laughs> hearing this podcast probably knows. There is a tremendous amount of book banning going on around the country right now. And um, so I haven't been thinking much about alcoholics in the interim, but I'm I'm happy to to talk about them. So it's interesting the the context of when this was written. Did you always want to write a book about this topic, or was there something that you read or something you saw and you were like, I've really got to do this. I got to take a pause in between because there's there's sort of a through line in the other things that you wrote. And then this is sort of in the middle of all of that. Was there some trigger that kind of was like, I've got to do this? No, I, you know, I just write things. I write about things I'm curious about. Right. So right. I'm mostly, you know, I love research. I love, you know, really digging into primary sources and um, and finding things that, you know, um, discovering things. And I, as I said, I, um, 
the story of AA is pretty well known, um, you know, beginning in 1935. And, um, but there's so much history um, before that period, so many efforts, recovery, you know, efforts at recovery really begin um, at the beginning of the 19th century and um, with a, um, with an Indian, a Native American, uh, um, Iroquois uh, warrior who himself was a, an alcoholic and who started a spiritual movement um, that was the first significant recovery movement in the country. His name was Handsome Lake. And um, as a result of his, um, of this movement uh, and the, the um, principal holding of the movement is that um, that Native Americans shouldn't drink. Um, it was an absolute prohibition on alcohol because, and there are plenty of good reasons for that. And it wasn't just his own alcoholism, but alcoholism had decimated um, Native American uh, tribes for 200 years by that point. And, um, and there had been, you know, sporadic efforts among various tribes to, to stop um to stop the sale of alcohol and the drinking of alcohol, but Handsome Lake was the first, um, uh, the first person to lead a continuous movement, which significantly cut back and reduced drinking among um, uh, the Iroquois nations. So um, that blew my mind, and I had read that. I forget exactly where I first heard about Handsome Lake, but. Um, Obviously, as soon as I did hear about him, I needed to know more. And um, so that's one of the great pleasures of, you know, of research is, you know, discovering things that you don't know. Um, so it was just it was, you know, there wasn't it. It was just uh, I was looking for for a subject. And this was this was an obvious one for me. Uh, you know, talking about things you don't know and kind of maybe starting at the beginning a little bit and kind of painting a picture for folks of the story that it tells. I mean, I was just I mean, I, I think I had read this before, but I was astounded by the scale uh, and and um, the amount of alcohol that was being consumed in early America. I think that that is I mean, there's a lot in there that that is sort of like eye opening. But for me, that was you know, there's, there's things that you, you learn about recovery in this and, and it's fascinating kind of these pieces, but like just the, the scale and intensity of uh, alcohol consumption is something that I don't think most of us, um, appreciate or, or recognize what was going on in early America and how we sort of set ourselves up for things like prohibition and it seems like prohibition, you know, obviously it didn't, we were well aware it didn't succeed. Um, but in some ways, it, it certainly seems to have reduced at least the 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 intensity and the scale of drinking. I mean, I don't think we ever will get back to where we were when you talk about like the 18th century and the amount of drinking that was happening. Do you, For people listening, do you, I mean, you know this inside now, like, give us a sense for like that early American, like what kind of set us up for this conversation around recovery and prohibition? Like what was happening in early America in terms of drinking? Well, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the amount, the average amount that, um, uh, that people drank at that time, including children, um, was two to three times what we drink, um, today. And it did become 
um, a major problem in the first decades of uh, the 19th century. So, um, so bad. And in fact, in, in it, um, as I, the story I tell in the book is the story about John Adams's son um, who died of alcoholism and and um, the great shame that that brought upon the family and uh, basically the family disowned him and buried him in an obscure place. Um, so a temperance movement began in the early in the early nineteenth uh, century and um, uh, you know in which. It was a widespread uh, national movement, and um, people signed a pledge, you know, not to drink. Uh, as um, was a very common thing, and and the movement grew and grew, um, but it didn't it didn't achieve um, what it hoped for, and that's what ultimately led to the you know the long fight for prohibition. Um, you know, it did it did reduce drinking some, uh, but unfortunately for people who are alcoholic, it didn't help alcoholics much, um, and it wasn't really intended to help alcoholics. It was it was an effort to try to get people who didn't have a drinking problem to to stop before they developed a drinking problem. In fact, many some temperance people were so cruel they said, you know, let the we're just going to let the alcoholics die. And going forward, you know, people won't develop the develop the disease. Um, they didn't think it was a disease. Won't develop the the habit. Um, so, um, so another. So the first movement among, you know, the white population um, that was really intended to help the alcoholics was something called the Washingtonian movement, um, which, much like AA later. Um, made a real effort to reach out to alcoholics and to help them find sobriety and um, uh, and really showed for the first time that alcoholics could get sober, um, that they could, you know, they could quit if they had support, uh, which which ultimately led some doctors to begin to see uh, alcoholism not as a moral failing, but as an illness. Um, and even a disease uh, by the end of the 19th century. Because you point that out, too, that there that there is a and that's an important distinction and a big point you make in the book is that there is this changing understanding in nature of what is alcoholism. Right. So this idea that it. it the way we look at it today is profoundly different than it would have been perceived. And, you know, you even kind of mentioned that at one point you said something about it being a disease. And you're like, well, they didn't think about it. They didn't they didn't see it as that. You want to touch on that? Like, how has the, the understanding of alcoholism or people's relationship with alcohol changed over over? You know, what are what are the what are those periods of time and what were the way we looked at it over that period of time? So by the end of the by the end of the 19th century, there was actually a society of, of doctors um, that were dedicated to um, to find to helping you know create institutions to help alcoholics recover. So that there was at least a significant professional population of people who recognized that it was not a moral failing. It was not a matter of personal weakness. It was a matter of um, people. Uh, were drinking because they had to drink, um, and um, and there were even some state 
you know, some state institutions were set up for, um, for recovery as well. Most of it was private um, asylums and hospitals, but, um, and so there was this, there was this very promising movement um, that basically was eclipsed by prohibition and, you know, prohibition held out the promise again of the temperance movement before that, you know, once people couldn't drink, the problem of alcoholism would go away. And um, and for a while it did. And the, the rate of alcoholism dropped in the early years of uh, prohibition. But um, Americans wanted to drink and there was really no way to stop them. And um, and and ultimately alcoholics were able to find, you know, what they needed in order to survive. They needed that alcohol. Um, you know, the, the the deprivation of alcohol itself could cause death. Um, and that's where the DTs, you know, the DTs were the first sign of um, massive withdrawal. And um, so um, prohibition didn't help alcoholics at all. Um, and um, it, what all it managed to do was wipe out the institutions that had been created for them. So that by um, by the early 30s, by the mid 30s, when the two founders of Alcoholics Anonymous found each other, it was just a wasteland. You know, they um, these were professional professional men who made it. You know, um, uh, well, who were in, in some cases on the verge of death themselves, and um, and only found relief in rest homes. You know, temporarily, and then they returned to drinking. Um, so Alcoholics Anonymous um, establishes for the first time that large numbers of people could stay sober, not just, you know, a few cases, but um, as we know today, millions. Um, and um, and that, you know, began to change the attitudes toward the country. The government finally in the 1960s began to allocate money for alcoholism treatment and um and then, of course, there was a boom in the re in rehabilitation in the 80s uh, and in the 90s. But, you know, the stigma is, is not entirely gone. Um, and you see it resurfacing, you know, in discussions of, um, you know, the opioid epidemic and, and how to, you know, how to treat, um, how to deal with this terrible um, uh, threat to and the, you know a hundred thousand a hundred thousand people died of overdoses last year um and there's still you know opposition to to steps you know that could help those you know those people so the stigma isn't entirely gone um but it's much it's much reduced which is a good thing and and the the stigma being that it's a moral failing is that the way early America? I think that that's what the book kind of suggests that that was the way early America looked at it, and that 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 legacy of that is still intertwined in the way we look at other forms of addiction. Perhaps it's not always there, although I think there still is a stigma around alcoholism like that. Um, you know, in, in certain people, but um, is is that that was the sort of the when did that really how how did we break that what what was the moment when people realized well this isn't just a moral failing this is truly a disease well i i think i think when you know people in in aa you know had 
when AA was, you know, 10 or 20 years on and people were staying sober, you know, it began to be clear that um, they hadn't been drinking because they wanted to, because, um, you know, they'd been they'd been drinking because they didn't have a program. Um, they didn't have any kind of um, program of recovery. That's that's what AA really provides. And um, and that, you know, um, and then subsequently other you know forms of recovery and other programs have have evolved um, so that uh, you know so that it is clear in most in in the overwhelming and it's not just as you say it's not alcohol it's not just drugs it's you know um, obesity and um, you know these are all um, sometimes condemned as personal you know the the result of personal, um, weakness, um, you know, bad values, bad upbringing, um, and, um, instead of really focusing on what's important, which is, you know, finding ways to, to help people. And we are much more, you know, I think as a society, we're much more accepting of that, um, of that need for, you know, uh, recovery, uh, supporting recovery than, um, at any time in our history. Why don't we take a quick pause here, come back, um, talk about the, the work that went into researching this, uh, what you're working on now, um, and and perhaps maybe a little bit about how um, alcohol is, is in, ingrained in some ways on the landscape and, and how preservationists can be a part of um, telling that story. And we'll do that right back here when we come back on PreserveCast. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work and there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, the campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP's an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast today. We're speaking with Dr. Christopher Finan. Um, and for our purposes, we're talking about his book, Drunks, the Story of Alcoholism and the Birth of Recovery. Before we took our break, um, we were just talk, sort of talking all about um, this book and how it, it traces sort of America's understanding and perception of alcohol and alcoholism and how that changed over time um, and how AA was a big part of um, providing um, not only a place for recovery, but also to change the, the America's understanding of, of what it meant to be an alcoholic and what brought on um, this disease um, and what what um, you know is 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 behind it. Um, I'm I'm curious, uh, you know, from a, this is a you know in some ways a, a preservation first podcast. We talk about history in a lot of different ways, but we have a big following and big audience of people who 
you know, preserve places associated with American history. And so we like to talk about different topics associated with it. Um, you know, alcohol is, is such a critical component of American history in, in so many different ways. I mean, you're talking about recovery and sort of um, the early history of it. But it's, you know, it's all across the landscape in saloons and taverns and, and places where, you know, history was made and um, so much of early politicking happens in these places and, um, you know, sort of the seeds of the revolution and civil war and all these sorts of things sort of play out in these places. When a preservationist approaches this, um, you know, how how, how best to, to do this, what what do you see as being done well in terms of preserving that story and the landscape? Um, you know, just thoughts on preservation of these places and and what is missing? Um, you know, are there how do we preserve the story of AA? And is that you know, it's it's hard to preserve something that's anonymous. But um, how 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 does the preservation story sort of play out in all of this? I'm curious your thoughts on that kind of having been involved in this. And I'm sort of putting you on the spot. But, you know, I'm just curious how you then see it play out on the landscape. Well, um, there aren't many monuments. There aren't many monuments to um, uh, to AA. There are some. There are some places there um, that have been preserved as, um, uh, for, for example, and primarily um, Dr. Uh, Dr. Bob, who was one of the founders, Bob uh, Smith, Robert Smith, uh, his house in Akron is, um, is uh, preserved as a museum, and um, which was really, um, and I, I was, fortunate enough to go and visit and um so there's the you know there's still a coffee pot on you know almost all the time in the you know in the kitchen you know as a symbol of what kept them going in the earliest because um initially for the, the first days of AA um after Dr. Bob met um Bill Wilson who was a New Yorker um Wilson lived with him and they they huddled around that coffee pot for, for as they as they began to um, lay plans for you know for organizing other and recruiting other alcoholics. So it's a it's a wonderful place. You got a, had a great feeling uh, being there, knowing the story. There are um, people in AA who, as far as preserving the history of AA as opposed to the places. There's a very active community of people. Um, who study AA history and um, uh, and have preserved it, um, you know, the, the history of the big book, which is the, the founding um, publication of Alcoholics Anonymous and contains the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is researched. Um, there's a great recent book um, that digs into the history of every, you know, every aspect of the um of the big book, as it's called, um, and um, and there are you know there are sites um, you know there were places there was the the hospital um, where Bill Wilson um, started his recovery in in Upper uh, Upper Manhattan. You know I, I don't even know whether there's a plaque on that, but. Um, but yeah, most of it is is preserved, you know, by people who and they get online and you know they listen to the tapes of because they're tapes of the founders and 
the outstanding leaders of AA. And um, every day there are, you know, there are these meetings online. So, um, so there's no question that, you know, the history of AA is going to be well, uh, well tended. And the, and, and the response to, you know, my book was very, you know, gratifying and, um, uh, but increasingly, you know, that history is also part of a larger story of addiction in America and addiction recovery. Um, and that also is now um, becoming a much more, much more uh, researched um, subject. So, um, yeah. I think it's I think it's interesting because, you know, when when people think about preservation of sites of alcohol or things like that, the mind goes to taverns and and sort of the 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 frivolity and the, you know, the exuberance of drinking and sort of, you know, all of this kind of fun. And I think it's important for sites and places to kind of think about the other side of that and to read a book like this and to think about um you know, the addiction and illness and, and how that played out in these sites as well. Um, and sort of giving a balanced approach to that, you know, the preservation and history community talks a lot about telling the full story of American history. And so when it comes to alcohol, I think that that's one of the reasons I wanted to kind of have this conversation is that there's a full story to tell here as well. And many sites don't get into that. Um, and I think that that's, that's an important piece and something to, to be gleaned and to sort of, um, taken away from this conversation and certainly your book, there's a link in the show notes for people to purchase the book. Um, I strongly encourage them to do it. It, it is a great read, um, really opening, and sort of, I, I love topics where you take something that, you know, you, you think, you know, something about alcohol in America and, and kind of turn it on its head and get a different, um, understanding for uh, what that story means. And that certainly is a part of this. Um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, you said you're, you're retiring. This was sort of a, uh, a pause from a, a larger um, uh, body of work, particularly on censorship and free speech. Um, you don't seem like the type of person who isn't working on something right now. I'm guessing you've got something um, coming together. So what can people expect from you next? What are you, what are you writing next? Well, I'm trying to figure that out. Um, it, it will probably be about free speech. You know, as I said, we're, we're in the middle of, of a real crisis in this country and a real battle over um, what kids should be allowed to read in schools and, and libraries. And, um, and it's a, it's, it's a great struggle that's going on between, you know, people who are trying to, um, you know, to pull thousands of books off the shelves and the people who are trying to keep them, uh, on the shelf. So, um, um, so yeah, I think it'll be more journalism than history this time. Um, I really want to interview, um, people who have been leaders in, um, in this fight, particularly young people who I mean, may not be, they may not be young now, but, um, you know, some of the heroes of, um, you know, the Mary Beth Tinker who, um, you know, helped, uh, you know, by standing up for her right to protest the Vietnam War as a high school student, helped give us protections for the rights of, um, students to, to protest. And, um, they're they're just a lot of really um heroic uh uh individuals that i want to meet <laughs> and so it's like it's 
kind of selfish, but um, uh, but this is this is why I do it. It's it's to me, it's just very fascinating. Well, it's this entire conversation has been fascinating. That's a good work, word for it. And the, the book is fantastic. And it, as we said, it, it, it traces this history um, throughout American history and tells the story of recovery, which I think is important not only for people just to understand, but also for this preservation community to think about as we interpret places and tell stories um, and look at history from all angles and all perspectives. And that's what this book does a great job of. And one of the reasons we wanted to bring people um, this conversation. Before we go, um, we ask everybody about their favorite historic place or site. Normally pretty difficult for people who who live in this world and enjoy this sort of thing. But um, we sometimes let people off uh, easy and say your your favorite place that you've most recently visited. Um, but but what what appeals to you, Chris? Well, yeah, I thought uh, you gave me the chance to think about this ahead of time. So um, to me, it's um, there's a there is a statue. Um, oh, sorry, there is a statue in um, the Alfred E. Smith houses in New York City, not far from my office in Lower Manhattan. Um, it was erected as a monument to Alfred E. Smith, um, as I said, the subject of my um, my first book. Um, it's a wonderful and humane um, rendering, not only of the man, but of you know what the the sidewalks of New York were when he was um, when he was governor in the in the the twenties, and um, it's surrounded by these um, these houses. That, you know, one of the, some of the first public housing, hmm. um, and in that sense, it's actually in its location really talks to the man's humanity. Um, you know, his ability to rise above his kind of Tammany origins and become a great reformer and um, an advocate for um, for working class New Yorkers and Americans. So I, I always get a little um, catch in my throat when I'm there. Well, that's a, that's a good place. And um, I would uh, love to come and see that at some point. That's, that sounds like a good one um, and a great place to end the conversation. Um, it's been a pleasure talking with you. It was a pleasure reading the book. I encourage everybody to pick it up. There's a link in the show notes. Um, and uh, look forward to uh, seeing what you write next. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Nick. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.